0: Go. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Commonwealth Matters. It's Sunil, Phoebe, and I here again to talk about China, which it feels like is always a hot topic. Um, today, we're going to be talking really about mainly about how to manage the threat of China and its, its growth into a superpower in the world stage. If you remember last episode, um, we talked about the historical basis for that. Um, but this week, we're going to be focusing on the, on the here and now. Um, and we're going to go through what some of the main issues are and then how we really need to deal with them. So I think over the past year, some of the really standout ones have been the treatment of the Uyghur Muslims, um, Hong Kong, um, Australia's relationship with China. These are some really hot topics. Um, I think we should probably start with the Uyghur Muslims because it seems like the biggest one.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it's, it's interesting. The It seems like the biggest talking point right now is whether to call it genocide or not um i think we can all agree like it's definitely inhumane and those actions are, i think definitely require like much more uh scrutiny um i think i, I don't know your, your guys take on it like because i've been reading a lot in terms of is it genocide is it not the definition and i think canada are currently going through this process of um and we had michael Trong recently on a platform who was one of the people who first lobbied that it should be called genocide and it should be accepted as genocide um I don't know where you guys sort of stand on that.
0: I don't know whether it's kind of killing killing discussion a bit to go. I, it, genocide, whilst we've got definitions, it's how we look at it in history is what's really important. And we've got to kind of judge whether in 20 years, when we look back, will the rest of the world be judged kindly for standing by and watching it happen, regardless of the technical nef- ge- definition of it. In 20 years, we'll look back and go, honestly, I'm scared to say it, but I don't think we'll look at it that dissimilar, dissimilarly, the Something like the Holocaust because it's not that far away. Um, I was, I was, I was,
2: I agree. I think Auschwitz is a clear, a clear other example that we can always, you know, history repeats itself, unfortunately. And I think it's really clear that this is nothing new, and therefore we should look back to previous, uh, uh, you know, events of the past um, and how we reacted, and and you know, definitely across the world, certain events that took too long to react to. Um, and, you know, hindsight is a brilliant thing, but this offers us a great opportunity to actually look at the past and act now. And I think, especially because of the, the recent sanctions this week that China put um, on, on MPs, on, um, you know, Essex court chambers, um, you know, this is this is a tap on the rule of law, you know, that, that China has no issue to enact these sanctions. And, and that, for me, is a red flag. That, that isn't something you know, China's really putting up their defences here and that should be, you know, no no reason to stop now. In fact, I, I think that's probably the, the go-card to to start even more.
1: No, I, I definitely agree. I think that sanction is, there's, there's uh, Conservative MPs who have been banned. I think it was at Tom, um, I'm sure I, I saw Tom Tuget who's been banned on there. I'm pretty sure he's one of the ones on there. That's it, um, and I, I think there's got to come a point where we someone has to kind of stand up to them, but it's it's a difficult one where, where they have so much apolitical power and economic power in, in all of our countries, so it's, I don't know who's gonna, how we're gonna initiate the first kind of move um, a, against China, because there's always that sort of, I think, I can't remember if it was Sporting who once said um, about, it's like, we give them a slap on the wrist and we don't wanna take it too far in case it has economic consequences. Um, but I think what's going on with the Uyghur Muslims, it's like, I think we have to look past that. And this is clear, just a, a basic human, um, like in, inhumane thing that's going on.
0: Yeah, I think if you look back to the excuses that were given about appeasement, they are very similar to the excuses that we're giving now going, we're too economic, rely on them. We can't afford a war. And they, these are all very, very good points. But we look back on appeasement and go, you should have some, done something differently. And at the moment we're doing the exact same thing again. And it, it's that it's that whole idea of, uh, that, that's the definition of insanity, just doing the same thing over and over and over again. And it's it's scary every time, because when there's nuclear weapons, and like we can't go to war with China. That's, that shouldn't be on the mm. table, really, because it will result in a lot more deaths than we will prevent. But where where's the moral line drawn? How, how much do you give? Because they've shown they will take a mile. Um, And it's that that's a very, very scary prospect then.
2: Yeah, it is, is one of these conundrums that we have, because um, uh, as you said, we can't go to war with China. This this is the situation is that, you know, you give China an inch, it'll take a mile. And we see that it's buying up loads of land, resources and debt in Africa, creating more ties with people who are not friends of the West, Um, you know, really trying to push out as far as they can you know, building up their military doing as much as they can to be, uh, you know, leaders of the on the world stage to be a massive presence and to and to overtake many nations, for example, America, but we can't go to war with them. So there are certain things that they're doing, especially in 2020 and 2021, um, where they are slightly pushing over the line. And it really is one of the biggest issues today of what do we do when we can't go to war.
0: I think Hong Kong falls into a very similar vote in very similar boat there as well because it's another example of not not trying to challenge the world, but I think specifically they're challenging Britain and saying how how much they can take in in regards to Britain's commitment to Hong Kong. Which admittedly I, I do respect that it's, it's very tricky for the government and they they, they have tried to create this mechanism where um, like British overseas passport holders can come to the UK and can settle here, and that at the moment is is probably the biggest step that they can reasonably take um but but that's a very specific example of of china going we don't care about this international agreement we don't care about what you think about hong kong we're just going to do it anyway and it's the people of hong kong that suffer and it's then a very very tricky situation in, in how you manage that because you've got to maintain that commitment to those people which you told not not too many decades ago that you were going to make sure they were okay and that they were going to be the people to Westernize and liberalize China. Um, and they're the ones now who are literally dying in the streets over it. And, it, and the UK is just having to stand by and watch it happen. Um, and it, that's think, a very, very specific target.
1: To put it in context, I think the, the new uh, Hong Kong law, I think is definitely something we should talk about in terms of the election process. Uh, where now, by um, to run to be uh, have, to be a, in politics in Hong Kong, you have to essentially support the CCP. Um, it's like a new sort of buffer that they've put in, where you have it's like uh, you need to be uh, show that you are um, loyal to China, but it's not just China; it's CCP, um, which completely removes the kind of aspect of democracy, which I think we all expected Hong Kong to stay um, root on route with. Um, And I think, obviously, the 2019 elections in Hong Kong, I think that almost served as kind of fear for the CCP in terms of the movement and what's going on in Hong Kong. So I think that law is definitely something worth uh, us speaking about because it really does uh, put some serious restraint um, on Hong Kong and their actual uh, freedom of speech and their freedom of democracy, to be honest.
0: I think uh, on on that specific issue, it's it's also worth... Um, acknowledging the groundwork that has been laid for that law over not just not even past decade, but extending probably past 15 years. So um, someone who if you haven't had a look at, I doubt his Twitter's is not going to be very active at the moment because the Chinese have not in prison. But Joshua Wong, there's a, there's a documentary about him on Netflix, uh, which is absolutely fantastic. And when the Chinese um, government... What, first strikes, um, I can't remember um, okay. if you search Joshua Wong Netflix documentary. Um, it, it's really inspirational. He was about 14, 15 when the, um, when the Chinese government started trying to change the um, education system in, in Hong Kong and start making it really independent, basically just make it a tool of Chinese propaganda. Um, and he led the protests at, at a very young age to really get people out of the streets to stop that. And here's basically his very young political career. I think he ran um, for a seat in local government in Hong Kong as soon as he was eligible. But the CCP changed the rules at the last minute to expel him. Um, and that was long before this law existed but they used this national security law um, because that's what it's called um, in classic legal, in classic political fashion um, to um, imprison Joshua Wong Um, and he really has been a bastion for, a very young bastion for Hong Kong democracy and it's that was one of the saddest but quickest things to happen after that law was implemented um, was people like Joshua Wong who stood up for stood up for Hong Kong against the CCP and had done for a long time and had always had targets on their backs, uh, it, it gave the Chinese government the ability to pull the trigger.
2: I uh, I wonder how <laughs> much money the CCP tried to play Netflix not to that documentary. It's a good example, it's a good example of the West actually um, fighting back in, in a certain cultural sense that um, you know if we can't do certain sanctions or if we can't actually make a difference on the boots on the ground the people on the ground that are living in hong kong okay if we can't legally international law be able to do something how else can we how else can we have an effect and another one is obviously spreading awareness so i think i think something like that for example as a solution on, on netflix having a documentary is a really good first step
0: it's called joshua teenager versus superpower by the way just
1: just google it gotcha. I watch that <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think it, no, I think that leads quite well to, um, if we talk about sort of other countries with China, I mean, Australia-Chinese relationships looking really interesting um, going forward. It, it's worth noting a lot of the, the countries, you know, both New Zealand and Australia, do have a significant reliance on China, more so than we do um, in some in, in respects. So I think their relationship and how that's unfolding is going to be really fascinating as we move forward. Um I, I don't know what your guys saw sort of thoughts on and how you see the that kind of relationship developing. I, I know it's been in the news quite a bit, Australia and, and China. Um
0: yeah, I think it, it's a very it's a very good example of the the world that China has taken a long time to concoct. Um and that no matter the war of words that it has with Australia at the moment, that I think really came to a head. Was it a, a doctored picture that they produced of um yeah. Australian soldiers were killing some Afghan American soldier. Like
1: that. But, yeah, that was yeah, something towards yeah. the end of last year.
0: Yeah, and it, it really came to a head like you could see the war of words building and, and this rhetoric changing, but ultimately it was empty because the Australians and, and the West were really never going to be able to do anything because it's I think it's their mineral imports that they're almost wholly reliant on China for. Um I, I believe that I may be wrong. I think it's minerals. Um but it, it creates a situation where they, they can't turn around. And I think the US is another example. So the US import market is I, I believe 75% um, comes from China. So uh, at the end of the day, like it, regardless of the trade war, an outright ban is never gonna happen. So they've got to very be very careful about what they do because they could cripple their own economy, uh, basically overnight. Um, and that's, that's a very scary situation that China have done a fantastic job, I must admit, of creating for themselves. <laughs>
1: I think Chinese investment in Australia went down by 61% um, last month. So, yeah, there's been um, clear repercussions.
2: I think um, commodities are so important. I think that's, that's definitely something I'd like to talk about because... China have, have done so well in their commodity trading and their, their, their general needs trading as well. So for example, take Africa. Um, we all know how, how visible their presence is in Africa. That's, that's really obvious, but take Zambia, for example. Um, China now owns one third of Zambia's debt um, and they have significant investment in mining and you know, within the industrial sector, but also agriculture that's that's key commodities at the end of the day that everyone needs you know we can we can talk about finance and you know stock market and and everything like that that a lot of the time isn't real life things but when you know when you have trade and imports and everything that is so reliant on china i i find it really difficult for western states to find unless they turn more to self production Um, And again, finding, you know, making their own trade deals, which obviously we've seen the UK do, you know, when you're so reliant on China, there's very little that, you you know, it's checkmate, in my opinion, because at the end of the day, you know, we've seen China on so many, so many occasions, you know, increase trade tariffs, stop trading, take back things, you know, make everything incredibly expensive. And it hurts the economy. It hurts the people at the end of the day. It hurts our GDP. And, um, you know, there's no point in even talking about nuclear power when they can win this way.
1: I, I think it's so smart what they're doing in in terms of Africa. I think you know, you've got to be careful when we use this word, but it, it does seem quite imperialistic in, in terms of the, the kind of control um, that they are getting from these regions. And I think it is definitely a cause for concern. Um, I think it was quite welcomed when Boris Johnson sort of made those comments. Um, I don't know if it was earlier, um, towards the back end of last week, uh, where he sort of said about developing countries that he wants them to be less dependent on China economically. Um, and, and I think that's the kind of uh, rhetoric that's gonna be sort of key going forward. Uh, that said, it's obviously gonna have some implications on our relationship with China, um, and so I, I, I think that that's going to be a very important side. It's it's interesting when you talk about sort of commodities angles. Um, do, do you see that as something that's going to carry on long term with, with China? Like, do you think that's part of their sort of long term strategy to sort of take over that commodities industry in Africa?
2: I think so. I think you know the 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 belt. I don't know that you know with the Silk Road and and everything like that. I don't see a, a half-assed strategy here. I see a very well thought out, a very good chessboard with a really good strategy, mm. and it's 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 quite poetic to watch. To be honest, I'm quite I'm quite in awe of it because you know they're they're blessed with having a big country, a huge population, the human rights laws laws that don't apply there, so therefore an increased workforce, so longer hours, more people, you know, less human rights. Um, and, and they've created this massive machine, this money-making machine. And as we spoke in our last episode about currency manipulation, you know, the internal trade, everything that they do there, you know, uh, g- complete control, surveillance, you know, it's all very controlled. Um, and you know, the ability to not be part of a Western civilization where there are certain laws and legislations, and just you know. G- common politeness in order to, in, in what we do, um, that they have this ability to buy lots of land, buy debt, um, you know, do lots of mining with a lot of countries that, that that frankly need the money, they need the resource and they need, you know, they need the support and, you know, they're more than happy to to take it from China. I think it's a really good strategy. <laughs> Not one that I think the UK and Western States should do, but I, you know, I still, I, I still think it's, um, I don't want to say a winning strategy because obviously I don't believe that their ideology is is going to allow them to win, but um, especially not for their people. Um, but it, it it's really tricky to navigate. Then you know we we've spoken about what they're doing in twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty one, and we want to move on to talking about how how to manage it um, and what Western civilization can do. Um, I think it's I think it's really tricky. You know we, we we've spoken about trade tariffs and and sanctions. But um, as we've seen with Iran and China at the moment, they've um, they're obviously both under a lot of trade san- sanctions from the US, which has caused them to move together in a longer partnership. Um, you know, 25 years of, of cooperation purely because the US is adding more and more sanctions to them. It is, you know, what are your guys' thoughts? Do you think sanctions on China are, are the best way to go, or do you think that that just pushes them? to other non-Western states, uh, forming a more of a cooperation.
0: I think this is the, the key f- with, in, with regards to sanctions, is, is that countries need to be very careful not to go it alone because China can deal with countries all around the world individually firing a shot at them. They can deal with that and they'll be absolutely fine. What they may not be able to deal with and hasn't really been seriously attempted in the past because people are, countries are very flaky um, is a, a group of countries with large economic clout that make a very coordinated attack on China's economy. Um, and personally, Commonwealth seems like if you could create that situation, the Commonwealth seems like a perfect avenue to, op- to a potent avenue by which to pursue that. Um, even if you just took the US and the UK, they could wipe out twenty percent of China's export market overnight. Um, obviously, as I've said earlier, with the US with then there's a reliance on China, so they probably wouldn't be able to do that. But there's $350 billion worth of trade up for grabs there. So even if you made very careful, very coordinated attacks on, say, even the China's tech industry, so something like Huawei, which technically isn't government-owned, government but is, um, or the um, Chinese General Nuclear Power Group, that's, that's, that's a perfect example. That's something that's blacklisted in the US, but continues to operate in the UK. That doesn't make any sense. The U.S. and the U.K. are arguably two of the closest allies that the world has ever seen. Why are we not coordinating on something as crucial as that On something that we can agree about in that China is a threat? That's a bigger threat than we can ever pose to each other. So we should be coordinating on that front. And then a mirrored vein, Huawei, in that the U.S. has had massive sanctions on Huawei over the past few years, whereas it basically continues to operate like normal in the U.K., and those are very clear holes in that international strategy. Where if you say no and you shut that door, they can just go and open another one. So it needs to be coordinated. It needs to be very, very carefully planned out. You need to counter their thoroughness with thoroughness from yourself. And I know countries in the US have to, in the West, have to um, contend with the fact that they have to win elections and they they have to appease people in the, in, in the next five years. Whereas China, that doesn't really matter. Um, but the West needs to think very carefully about about changing that strategy because it's not had to contend with someone the size and with the economic and military clout of China before.
2: That's, that's a very good point about... Um the CCP not having to to being able to have a long term strategy, a strategy for over 50 years because they know they're not going anywhere. In a a way, it's quite quite ironic that democracy actually hinders us on some of these on some of these offences, because we do have to worry about the next election and we do have to worry about policies that'll that'll please the population in order for us to be re-elected again. it, it it isn't it is interesting. I think that you know a good solution, whether it be feasible or realistic, is that, you know, yes, we do tariffs, but we also look at our own, you know, self-production or trade within Western society um, rather than you know purely trading with with non-Western societies and and actually being able to grow your own, you know, source your own uh within with within your ideology. I don't, I, I don't know how realistic that is.
1: I think it's this potential for it um i'm not sure about economic sanctions if i'm honest uh, on china um i really liked um the the quad so the australia japan india and us i i, I really like the emergence of that uh, i'm not sure if you saw they had a meeting this month or uh, towards the end of last month where the, the four uh, leaders all spoke um together uh, and I, I, I love their concept. And I think they didn't mention China, but there was clear um, there, there was clearly that sentiment that they want to group together and almost take on battle against China. But that kind of thing is what I think will really push um, and make a difference um, on China. I don't think I'm not sure economic sanctions will do i think it's like you said phoebe in terms of it will just push i think people will see it as an opportunity you know if you're a sort of less developed country um and we impose sanctions on them that there's always someone else ready to sort of take our place or someone else's place um that we've done sanctions with because at the end of the day you know if you do partner with china you are going to have an economic probably boom you are going to improve economically and for some other sort of less developed countries that's more important than sp- you could argue morality that we can sort of talk about with food and, and shelter. Um, so I, I think that's why I'm not a huge fan of um, economic sanctions, but I love, and I think similar to what Noah saying, having nations together, making uh, joint decisions, joint approaches. That's why I think the Quad is something to really look out for. Those four countries, um, it's, it's interesting because I think in 2019, when there was talk of the Quad, China were really quite dismissive about it and they really wanted to almost shut that idea down. Uh, and now it actually seems like we're in like it's there's some movement there at least that's happening between the four uh, countries. Um, I also loved uh, I think it was Scott Morrison's um, setup, like his Zoom setup with all three countries was incredible. Like I know that's going to be off topic, but his his setup I was just sitting there thinking like I want all my Zoom meetings to be like that. But um, uh, he 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 was yeah really really it was really strong the uh, the conversation and stuff, and I I I think that's. That kind of thing is where I think we will really make a difference to China. I'm not sure on sanctions anymore that how much of an impact it will really have. Um, but I think that leads quite well to something that we should probably discuss about in terms of one of our Commonwealth countries, India, China. It's safe to say that that relationship is pretty hostile. Um, I think there was sort of an American official who said that it's, it's that they're at one of their sort of lowest stages um, that they've been in for maybe ever uh, as a relationship between the two nations. Um, and I think it'll be interesting to see sort of what kind of happens next between those two countries. I personally, I think it's going back to what Noah you are saying in terms of how the Commonwealth has an opportunity um, in terms of with what's going on with China to sort of unite together. I think more specific, if you're looking at one country within the Commonwealth or any country that could potentially benefit the most from this sort of China hostility is probably India. Um, similar place in terms of geography, the, the, the next biggest country in terms of population. Um again, it's uh, I think it has amazing manufacturing potential as we're seeing with the vaccines and stuff. So I, I think that's a potential um avenue for them to sort of exploit. I know last year that was their highest year in terms of FDI in terms of foreign direct investment. So they even during COVID more and more people were sort of investing in India. Um, so I'm interested to see your guys' sort of thoughts on that kind of relationship developing. It blows
0: my mind a little bit that that India-China conflict, the, med- the media and the in the West, it goes so under the radar. And that in mm. just... Yeah. If, if someone was to sit down, just a, a random member of the public who's not... I know we're all a bit like international relation nerds and politics, like, it, yeah. But if you just took just like little. a random person off the street and went, did you know that two new powers... At the end of last summer, six hundred soldiers in the Garwan Valley fought, fought with stones and iron rods and sticks with sticks with barbed wire on. They would go. That just makes no sense. That clearly didn't happen. That's what it <laughs> But it did. Yeah yeah,
1: yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. And it's it genuinely is mental to me that that they basically just went into stone age warfare just over this random random valley, Um and to be fair at least no shots were fired apparently um but
1: although they say that they did say i think uh there was five people in china that did die um yeah and so i think it it basically started um china was sort of uh annoyed by india building sort of new roads and infrastructure in the region of uh uh, ladaka um and i think because they have uh, infrastructure on, it's quite near sort of China side. Um, and so that's how it kind of started. Um, and so, yeah, you're right though. It wasn't really something that we was well documented at all. Um, I heard someone in the US, I don't know who it was, um, in, in the sort of government who said that they never for once thought that they would, this would actually lead to a full-on war. Uh, but that said, they did, you know, they were literally attacking each other, so, um, Thankfully, nothing more developed, um, but it, it goes to show there is a real hostile relationship between those two nations right now, um, and I, I'm really interested to see like, what happens next
2: it's the it's the tipping point it's there's you know over the last couple of years there's been a few things here and there that have really pushed everyone and we all know we're all ready we're all staring at our screens all the western states all the all the alliances we're all we're all waiting and and kind of looking at each other like are we gonna go are you gonna go who's what you know let's let's be pragmatic about
1: cold war
2: (laughs) yeah because we we have long-term relations you know we such a long peacetime relatively um you know we you know obviously completely disregard covid and everything that's done on the economy but things were getting better um you know progress was being made uh, you know, industry was growing. And and so, you know, it really doesn't, it, it doesn't take much for a world war to start, as we know from the previous two. Um, and all it takes is tensions building. And we've seen, you know, I, I really wouldn't be surprised India and China to, to really go into a mass conflict, and for everyone to choose their sides, which are already assigned, you know, no one needs to make a decision here. Um, of which side they're on but it's just it's just I don't know whether it is the we go with Muslims I don't know you know that there, there needs there will be a tipping point in which one state will make the first move which then as we've seen in the past causes the chain reaction and it all goes off from there. It's just now obviously we're, we're playing with with the nuclear weapons and you know we we've got too much to lose.
0: I think if I was to make a prediction um, and it's that's obviously a dangerous game to play, <laughs> um, but I make one um, based off of what we've seen over the past 20-30 years, um, and if you listen to a lot, what a lot of uh, people in the know really about international relations—the way that they see Africa, um, and especially the mineral, mineral-rich countries in it—and I'm putting in air quotes for anyone listening without any video here—but they see it as the new Middle East, and that's going to be where those proxy wars are probably fought over the next thirty years. And that's obviously not something that anybody should want but it's probably going to be what's what happens because that just is what happens um and china will be involved the west will be involved and it will be proxy wars yet again and it will be people in that region that suffer not people in well people in china are suffering already as a result of their government but they're not going to suffer as a result of the west and people in the west are probably going to be fine but it's the same as it was for the people in the middle east they're going to just be caught in the middle of of what was then essentially the, the cold war tailing off um, and the US and Russia throwing stones at each other but using other people to mask it and that's probably, I imagine what we're going to see in, in Africa as well because I think mutual issue destruction is as scary as it is this whole situation has probably been a vindication of it, the fact that India and China haven't fired a shot at each other um, uh, yet at least, but they've gone back to hitting each other with sticks um, probably suggests that both of them regardless of how mental the CCP are they're still scared to pull the trigger. There's still an element of humanity there. Um, and I, I yeah. do think as scary as that is, um, and as much as we don't want that to be the situation, you've got to look for a bit of a positive there. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that's probably the way that it will go.
2: Right. So so going back to our our whole topic of how we managed that, would you agree that actually the the, the focus is on, on Africa um, to maybe form more democracies and to be more self-reliant? like Boris Johnson is saying, uh, in terms of the mass infrastructure that China's putting into Africa, our, our strategy should be for Africa to be self-sufficient, to grow, to grow an economy in education and health and social security um, and, and not have to be so reliant on China. And that probably will, will be better for everyone, uh, which is already a strategy that we've seen that the Western states are doing already. Um, but maybe it's something that we should make more uh, people aware of
0: I think in that region, just from an international relations perspective, you're probably going to see a lot of focus on the development, and as quickly as possible, of somewhere like Nigeria. Because if you can create a Nigerian, and not necessarily world superpower, but make it a, essentially the dominant force in Africa. Not uh, a
2: third world country, yeah. Not
0: a third world country, but, mm. but one which is a, not necessarily a proxy of the West, but one in a similar way to... I, I hesitate to make the Israel comparison, but a similar way to the US used Israel for a long time, just as not a proxy of themselves, but an extension of some of those key values, um, then you probably see um, that, that, that web grow, hopefully, um, across Africa and, and kind of push the Chinese out because they'll be trying the exact same thing. And I imagine Nigeria seems like, seems like the focus for that, um, and I wouldn't be surprised Seeing as we are concerned for Commonwealth, I, as I wouldn't be supposed to see Commonwealth playing in the in that as well, and really trying to grow it its in, in the region.
1: I, I think, what, what countries do we think will be engaged in this? So I think it's safe to say US, UK, probably China, um, probably India, I think they'll, they'll probably be invested in this sort of, um, not war in Africa, but this sort of battleground. Um, Maybe it'll stretch as far as Australia, New Zealand.
2: Yeah, I mean, it would um, it would be good to get buy-in from as many as many states and you know as many Western states and, and as many Commonwealth states as possible. Um, and again, that that leads into all of our creating awareness. You know, creating campaigns that tells people. You know, even just a, gra- a grassroots perspective in that we need to. You know, a lot of people. Are, I I don't know. Correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, the day-to-day, you know, issues that that Africa is facing with with Chinese, you know, influence and and investor buy-in isn't really a massive. Uh, what I see on the news, it's not it's not massively going around. There isn't a daily update on everything that's that's going on. Obviously, I mean, everyone knows what was going on in the the Suez Canal and you know the the ever given boat that was that was lodged. That was a big <laughs> palava. Um, but you know, other other things like that, where you know, I just I think you know, Western states need to be more. More wary, and and populations need to be more wary and aware of what's going on in Africa, because um, uh, you know then you can you know lobby your representatives, lobby NGOs, lobby think tanks, you know in turn lobby governments, and then that's you know a, a grassroots campaign, and and hopefully that would cause some some kind of change.
0: Do You think part of the reason that maybe has not happened, and this is obviously purely speculative, um, but do you think part of the reason that's not happened is because Somewhere like the UK, especially, and if you look at other France, less so now, but a lot of those states are scared about um, presenting the image of some neocolonial ambition, when that's not what it's about, but it could be easily construed as such by, by people that just take it at face value rather than looking into it any, anymore. Um, do, do you think that's possibly part of the reason that, especially in Africa, we've kind of just not done as much as we probably should have?
1: I think so. I think definitely. I think there's always that thing where I think we're always worried of that sort of colonial history. And also, I think that sort of arrogance that some people may perceive outside of Britain. I think that definitely has an an impact. But I think that said, I think this is where I think Phoebe's right in terms of the spreading awareness that there's studies that have been done that show the majority of Africans still prefer Western influence over China and they prefer like our sort of development models. Um, so th- th- there is like positive signs from China that I think they would be more um, positive to get development from us. I think the the issue is, and I think the, the biggest concern for Africans from what I've read is that they they feel that the loans from China that uh, they borrowed are too much. Um, but then I think you're right in this sense no, in terms of Maybe those the African countries would probably welcome more development, more support from UK. It's more would we as a country be willing to do that, and would the public uh, be happy for us to do that? I think that's a different question. Um, I, I think that the colonial stuff is more of an issue in this country in terms of people um, bringing it up as is it Britain extending their colonial powers than it is in Africa. I'm not sure if they have the same sort of views um, there. I can really speak on them, but I, I don't think. The people of africa are sitting there worried about the uk uh, coming back to them and colonizing their nation i think it's more maybe people in the uk that are more um uh that are more that would probably say that as opposed to people in africa i don't know what you you guys think I, i'm not sure if that's something that they would be sitting there worried about
0: yeah i think it's very much a uk based thing like on a world stage um academically we talk about this idea of like us exceptionalism and this idea that us is is always always the best this is what it should be like but with the uk we've kind of developed from an international relations perspective the way that we look at ourselves this reverse british this reverse kind of british exceptionalism where we are always needing to be held to this this higher standard and everyone everyone else's sins are fine and they, they can get passed by the wayside but we need to constantly be different because of our sins and it, it creates a situation where we kind of we're kind of handcuffed and not able to do a huge amount because um, I th- there, was, there was an academic I can't remember his name, but I, I was reading some like academic work last week that basically condemned any British aid like foreign aid um, projects as neocolonialism because Britain developed countries when they had an empire. And it, uh, that doesn't make any sense, but that's not an uncommon no. view I've realized over the past year. and lots of lots of people especially on the left obviously, do think that um, and that makes it very, very tricky then for the UK to pursue any kind of meaningful foreign policy where it's not militaristic and, and not about preserving peace in the here and now and it's, it's about this long term idea of democracy and values. It, it makes it very tricky for the, US to do any, the UK to do anything productive.
1: I think that's, I, I think what's going on right now in the UK is very similar to the 60s and 70s of the UK. Um, prior to uh, Margaret Thatcher being um, Prime Minister, I, I think it's so reminiscent where it's just kind of like, um, we're almost not embarrassed of ourselves, but we're, we're very on the sort of, we, we shouldn't, like, we, we should be very, what, what's the word, we, we, we should be very cautious in what we say, we, we shouldn't be too proud to be British, we shouldn't be uh, this sort of rhetoric, we should be uh, mindful of the sins. Back in the 60s and 70s, there was, you know, understandably, there was two massive world wars. And I think you kind of see the, the sentiment of change and sense of, you know, maybe we shouldn't be too proud to be British because it may, you know, we saw what happened in, in Germany. But now it makes no sense to me whatsoever why we're on this kind of path length. And I don't know, it, it just really reminds me of that kind of uh, era where it, it went so liberal to a point where being like, British is seen as almost like a like a bad thing and we should be like you said like we should be um, we should be wary of our sins and all the bad things that we've done uh, completely ignore the fact that I don't think there's a single race religion country that has not done some pretty bad things for our history Um, so I I completely agree with you there no I I don't know I think it's that I think it's moving past that kind of stage and I I think I'm not sure if the whole country thinks like that Though I, I think maybe that is more of a sort of urban areas your you, you london's kind of and surrounding areas london who kind of have that opinion i'm not sure if that kind of that imperialistic are you going to return to that imperialistic uh way of life again i'm not sure if that's a, a concern of the whole country it, it's hard to tell because if you watch the media then yeah then I, I would think oh my god like we're literally you know that's what the whole country thinks um but Whether I really don't think social media sure. is a,
2: yeah, I was going to say, I, I agree with you, I really don't think social media is a reflection of of the country. I think that social media is very, very loud in one direction. And that makes it really difficult to gauge. Um, I'd love to do some polling, I'm sure someone has, but I'd love to do some polling. Across the nation of what they actually think, because obviously we saw that um, foreign aid dropped, and I think we've had this discussion before on the podcast or, or maybe a webinar where we, you know, we discussed, you know, do we think it's right that foreign aid drops? Well, actually, we're still one of the, the leading top countries that provides the most foreign aid. So, you know, I, I would ask these people who say, "Oh, well, you know, it's 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 neo-colonialism," you know, you should be ashamed that you want to help in Africa. I say, okay, but we still want to help. So, what's the solution if yeah. Africa can help? um you know that and and we have the ability and the provision and the resource and and the want to provide help how how would you then do it because i think that a lot of the time you have left media um or social media that is very much this is wrong that is wrong i don't like this but very little time do they actually you know on certain subjects provide a solution that's that's actually beneficial
0: yeah i think there's rhetoric over over actual practical like positive action is a massive problem with politics all across at the moment, but like, especially in this kind of arena. I think I, I wrote an article about um, US-UK joint action on China a, a month or two ago. Um, and the website that had published it, they, they had a um, a comment section. And I obviously went through because I, I, I like reading some of the hate. Um, and I, I said probably about 60% of the comments, um, I think there was probably like between 20 or 30 or so, um, we're well, basically just people saying the uk shouldn't throw stones do you not know the uk had an empire thus we should just let can't china do its thing as i was like, that's actually insane like I, I i don't understand yes china is essentially committing genocide um doing truly horrendous things killing democracy stuff that's inexcusable but Britain did bad things a few hundred years ago, so you can't try and help. And you end up in this situation where if you start doing that, nobody in the world can do anything positive, positive. Um, and we should just take, apparently, um, Biden's approach that he stood on stage and talked about a, a few weeks ago, that um, if it's in the Chinese culture to do these things, we should just let them do, um, which is worrying within itself, uh, to be honest.
2: Mm, find out more when we discuss the 100 days of Biden in our upcoming episode. That's excited for that. <laughs> that's, that's another episode to look forward to because uh, there is a lot of things that have happened in the last 100 days, especially between US and China, that we can talk about. So what we've thought then in terms of managing the Chinese threat, I will try and summarize in that we think that African states should be self-sufficient and that Western states should really be focusing on international trade, coalitions and Great. partnerships within themselves um, and do that in a non-confrontational way and basically reduce trade with China um, because we know that war cannot be inevitable and it cannot be, we are, no, no one would survive a third world war. Um, so interesting, any further <laughs> solutions? recommendations?
1: I I think the Southeast Asia uh, is something that is really really worth watching over the next uh, few months and years. I I think that's actually, um, I I think that may play a bigger part than Africa. I really think America and China are going to go through this battle for Southeast Asia Um, and I think the the issue is I think with these South Asian countries they have more history and they share more sort of some common values with China but I think if the the US can sort of position themselves and I think they are positioning themselves as being more friendly to these Southeast Asian countries I think they've got a fantastic chance of really um, I think really sort of expanding their economies and I think taking away the reliance on China I I think that's a really big area to look at Southeast Asia is uh, I think a region um, of the globe that is emerging so fast i think it's one It's i think it's one of the fastest growing if you like blocks that they are uh, indonesia and malaysia have expanded by like five to six percent over the decade same as the philippines vietnam even more um you know the, the the poorer countries in like cambodia they're growing even faster so i really think that's going to become uh, an area where we may look up for manufacturing not just us uk um like I said, it's a really big battle because China definitely have their imprint there. They're the, that region's biggest trade partner. Um, it pumps more investment than China. But I think um, China, uh, sorry, America has a fantastic opportunity there because I think although the, the Chinese have a incredible amount of investment there, uh, there is sort of now that we are starting of back sort of backlashes from these countries who are saying, uh chinese firms are sort of being corrupt the environmental damage is very high there's a lack of um and and also sort of some of these states that china do work with some of these countries in that region they will use chinese workers as opposed to uh, workers from that economy um so i think there is definitely scope for the uk and us uh to go there and sort of offer that kind of different side to uh, you know be more business friendly there and say to these countries um you're, you know, we're not going to bring people from America, for example, to your Cambodia's, your Vietnam's. We'll use your actual, the actual residents of these states, of these countries. Um, so I think there is, I think that's a really interesting space to look at. I think that's a real immediate battle that's going on, um, and I, I and I think America, UK, and other countries be well positioned to really start to take that seriously.
0: I give my little prediction, right? And I don't want to just be embarrassed when I get it completely wrong on my own. Five
1: years. Where are we? <laughs> Ooh. I'm going to go with Southeast Asia as the, the hot spot. I mean, that's the spot where um, everyone's going to be battling for. And I think not just, I think us, uh, America, Australia, I think there's going to be a real push for people to do more work there. And I think that will annoy China because they have such a stronghold over that region. And, um, I'm optimistic. I I think that will sort of force them back a bit um, in terms of their approach. I I think, yeah, I think that's my prediction. I'm going to say Southeast Asia is the big sort of hotspot for the next five to 10 years. And we're going to have a massive battle over there. And my hope is through this battle, through this sort of damage to the Chinese economy, um, that we start to see them play a bit fairer on the international stage. And that's very optimistic, but um, that's, that's what I'm going for. Oh, and India and China to continue down this this path of hostility. I don't, I don't see that changing anytime soon.
2: India and China, I, I would agree. I mean, I I think there's there's more to come there, and I think that's definitely something to watch. I see your Southeast Asia and I raise you in Africa, and I think there's definitely going to be a lot to go on there. And I think it is more of a volatile continent. You have more countries there that do not have democracy or aren't even trying to to become a democratic state. I think there's a a ton of corruption. Um, And again, something that we've spoken continuously about, which is commodities and commodity trade. And they really do run the world because it is, you know, things that people need, whether it be oil, water, you know, grains, any agriculture, you know, everything, you know, a lot of stuff comes out of Africa that we need. So I really think that that's going to be a, a big a big area to play for and i think that will probably be the the straw that breaks the camel's back
0: i'm delighted none of us have predicted worldwide death and destruction there by the
1: way <laughs> we're, we're
2: all positive
1: March 29 what, 2026 we'll have this podcast again and see yeah <laughs> i think that's a good place to end it on um Do
0: you want to move um, our event on wednesday a little um, a little plug because it's very exciting.
1: Good point. Good point uh, girls' education. Uh, so we have Helen Grant, our parliamentary chair. She's been tasked with uh, getting forty million girls into education across the globe by twenty twenty-five. Uh, now, obviously, a number of these countries that she's targeting and the UK government are targeting are Commonwealth countries. And so we're launching an event uh, with her and the former Canadian Prime Minister Kim Campbell on Wednesday where we're going to do a very basic introduction into some of the issues um, girls' education is facing across the globe, uh, the impact of COVID-19, which has been significant uh, on girls' education. And that will be the start. We're hoping to do a number of more events. Um, We're hoping to do some in person. Uh, We're hoping to really make a a real positive impact on this. myself and Phoebe have both written articles um on this subject matter and I'm sure we'll be uh, writing more um so yeah it's definitely something that we'll uh we'll be talking about for some time but yeah Wednesday is the uh the opening day if you like
2: and I think to finish off our podcast then I want to turn all of our questions and discussions to our viewers and our listeners. And I would really like it if everyone could also make their predictions for five years time and also come up with any other strategies of how to manage China. Um, We'd really love to hear from you because we will definitely be writing more about it.
1: Perfect. Well, hopefully we'll see you all on Wednesday and until next time.